from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that we are here to worship you because of what you have done for us. That once again, we open this book of Holy Scripture, which is your word lovingly given to us to know you and to know what pleases you. We pray, Heavenly Father, then, that you would make this reading and this hearing and this preaching to your glory by giving us ears to hear, minds to be attentive and hearts ready to apply your holy word. I pray, Heavenly Father, your grace, your spirit upon me to speak what this word says to us today, to do so with clarity, to do so with the power that is in it. We pray this in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, we have turned the page to chapter 3 of the book of Colossians. And though those chapter headings are uh, uh, put into our text later so that we can find uh, scriptures more easily, uh, it is nonetheless a, a transition point for Paul's treatment to the Colossians in this letter. He moves from uh, where he has spent a great deal of his time in the first couple chapters establishing the, the clear case that, that Jesus is enough and then taking that truth and demolishing many of the false teachings that were being promoted in Colossae like we saw last week, specifically the idea that uh, if you really want a closer walk with God, add some extra religion or some extra spirituality or some extra scrupulousness. And Paul showed that none of those are necessary because Jesus is enough. And in fact, to give ourselves to those sorts of things is to steal what Christ purchased for us, which is the freedom of trying to approach God through any extras, through any human effort, but instead to approach God by the free grace that comes by faith alone. So Paul turns then now into chapter 3 to take the same teaching that Jesus is enough and begin to work it into our lives and how we live. If we think about the purpose statement of River Community Church that we live in and live out the good news of Jesus, chapters 1 and 2 were very much about living in, getting, getting clear about what the gospel is so that we find our identity completely within it. Chapters 3 and 4 are just as important. They take, now that you know what the gospel is, you know what it does for you, now what does it look like to live in this world 
with the belief that Jesus is enough? How does it affect your day-to-day life? How does it affect what you do? And Paul starts with the very seat of what we do in chapter 3. He says that Jesus is enough must transform your thinking. It must first bear fruit in your mind. Now we've all probably heard the phrase, that person is so heavenly minded. How does it go? That he's no earthly good. Have you heard that phrase before? That person is so heavenly minded that he is no earthly good. It's a, it's a phrase that comes up any time somebody uh, seems to be a little bit too excited about their faith or a little bit too excited about maybe evangelism or something else. Any, 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 any fanatic is obviously somebody who cares about something more than we do. But uh, the, the idea of being too heavenly minded to be uh, any earthly good is a, is a phrase that uh, shows up in our culture, and it, it's, it's, it's trying to, to make the argument that if you really want to make change, you really need to be grounded here on earth. And yet, I have to read this passage again and again, and I have to wonder, does that saying know anything of Paul? Because what Paul says here is basically the exact opposite. Until you are firmly heavenly-minded, you will not do any earthly good. Paul is, is, is making clear that our mind must first and foremost belong in heaven before it can put anything good into practice in this world. He is going to show us that uh, as, as we have been raised with Christ, that there will be three marks that manifest the believer's new life in Christ, and that primarily begins in the mind. Is this passage important to us? Is this, is this helpful to us? I, I believe Paul, in, 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 in this short section of verses, is a word to anybody who is here today who has simply lost excitement in their faith. Your faith has become uh, uh, common and, and, and pedestrian and, and the same. Is there, is there anything to, to revive and excite you or, or is it simply this, this routine, humdrum faith? I, I believe that this word has something to any of you who are, have felt directionless or aimless in your faith, who have felt stale, like you're going through the motions. If you're sitting there saying, you know what, I just want more. Isn't there more to this, this faith than what I am experiencing? I believe Paul lays out very clearly, oh my goodness, there are treasures beyond your imagining that are for you here today. Some of you may be coming to this passage or coming to to the service today with questions of assurance. I mean, how, how can I know that I believe and that my faith is true? Paul is going to give us three marks that so clearly show whether or not you know what it, you, you know Christ or not. And I believe for m- many of us, this will make it so clear that you are in Christ. But if at the end it reveals to you, this doesn't describe me at all, then thank God that you're here today because this places quite explicitly 
what should be true for you. And if it is not, seek that it may be true. Let us look at this passage, three marks that manifest the believer's new life in Christ. We're going to see the first is a worshiping mind. The second is a selfless security. And the third is a controlling hope. Let us turn our attention to the first two verses. Let's read those again. If then, Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We see in these first two verses that the the first mark that manifests a believer's new life in Christ is this, a worshiping mind. We are to be a, a people who seek the things that are above where Christ is. Paul describes a Christian with with three beautiful words. He says a a Christian is someone who is raised with Christ. That's his definition of a Christian. Not somebody who turned in a card. Not not somebody who uh, goes to this church and not that church. He describes a Christian with this amazing image that a Christian is someone raised with Christ. That is his definition of being saved. He is saying that by faith, Christ died. That was your death to sin. And when Christ was risen by faith, you have been risen to new life with him. It is because faith unites us to Christ that a Christian is someone who is raised with Christ. Now Paul begins this argument with the word if. If can, can be a, a, a word that, that causes us to, to, to question, to think, wow. Is he saying that, that maybe you're not? The Greek yeah, syntax indicates that, that Paul is using the word if not to, to cast doubt on his readers, but to to use it in the the, uh, sense of since you have been raised with Christ. Since this is true, you have been raised with Christ. And so he is not uh, questioning the faith of uh, of, of the listeners here in Colossae. That being said, what does the if say to you? Paul is assuming that you are a believer. But in writing that if, he is reminding us that salvation is a condition of faith in Christ alone. And we must accept the logic that apart from faith in Christ, you are not raised with Christ. There is no salvation for you. And so, I hope as we look at this very first verse, that that if means since You have been raised with Christ. But if it doesn't, then I appeal to you to put your faith in Christ. Now here's the fascinating thing about that word raised. It's in the past tense. We we are raised already, past tense. And I guess I would have to say the way my body feels, 
I don't know that it sounds past tense in my life. How in the world is our resurrection past tense in Paul's mind? Paul is, is showing us that the salvation that we have is uh, real now and so certain that he can speak of our resurrection in the past tense. Because in one sense, it is true now. It is already the case. And in another sense, it is so true, but still awaits a further fulfillment. We see that it is already the case because in faith in Christ, we have experienced what is simply a a miracle, a, a spiritual resurrection. We have gone from being spiritually dead in Adam to spiritually alive in Christ. The word for that is regeneration. Every believer in Christ is regenerated. You are a a soul alive to God and eternally alive to God. So Jesus can say that those who believe in him that moment possess eternal life. That is because at the moment of faith is regeneration, is spiritual resurrection. But that is not the only sense, by far, that is not the only sense that Paul has for us as he talks about being raised. He is not simply talking about spiritual resurrection. He has in mind also the fact of physical resurrection. Because he knows that your faith in Christ, in the one who has been raised, is the certain guarantee that you also, like him, will be raised on the last day. The reason that we are confident that death is not the end, that life will swallow up death in victory, is because our faith is grounded on the one who is the firstborn from the dead, who has been raised, and therefore is the promise that we also will be raised. So how do we know? How do we know that this is true of us? I mean, that is the most critical question. How can we know that this spiritual resurrection has occurred in our life, that we have been regenerated? Paul makes it very simple. He says, look at your thoughts. Look at your thoughts. He tells us, seek the things that are above, set your mind on Christ. He addresses your mind when he wants you to know that you are spiritually regenerated. Our minds, every single one of our minds, are set upon something. Many of them right now are set upon the sermon, but not probably all of them. But all of our minds are set upon something We think all the time, and our thoughts go somewhere. That's why we use the metaphor of a a train of thought. Our minds are, are wrapped up in something. And within our minds sits those deep seated desires, those deep seated affections that just seem to curve our life towards something whether we are being uh, deliberate or not. And so when Paul uses the word seek, 
He is saying that a Christian's affections seek that which is above. That a Christian's mind is set upon Christ. That is uh, where, where he calls the Christian's mind to be. He says in, in uh, verse 2 that your, your mind can either be set uh, on Christ uh, or on things above, or your mind can be set on things on the earth. What does he mean by things on the earth? I believe he probably has in mind uh, what he uses elsewhere, the, the word flesh. In fact, if you look back at 2.23, you will see that uh, the false teachers uh, uh, were stuck in the flesh. He says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So in that immediate context, when Paul goes back and talks about uh, having your mind set on the earth, he seems to be talking about uh, the mind still set in the flesh. Now, flesh is a, is a broad term. It can mean many different things. But uh, in, in, in uh, Paul, you can find flesh describing sinful desires. Um, but I think more uh, to the point, Paul is dealing with the mind set on self-interest. What's good for me? What takes care of me? How am I going to uh, succeed or be happy? Um, the the earth, earthy thoughts would include worldly values, um, liking or pursuing or participating in, in the things that the world cherishes and values. Those are, are things that are earthly. Uh, and, 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 and you've probably heard enough sermons on all of those that I don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it. But I do think there is an example of heavenly-minded and earthly-minded that we do find ourselves very susceptible to. And that is secularism. This idea that there are some things that are, that are purely earthly, that are purely uh, this worldly. They're physical, they're, they're political, they are uh, nothing to do with religion, or they're nothing to do with our faith. And so we divide our lives between those things that are simply secular, those things that are simply the, the common square issues of the world, and those items that are part of our faith, that are part of our spiritual life. And many of us have found great success and, in fact, necessity in this world to have that, that, that faith and secular divide, to somehow compartmentalize your faith from the workplace or compartmentalize your faith from uh, your, your uh, recreation or compartmentalize your faith from one uh, area of public life or another. It makes things so simple. To, to divide these two things, to, to bring out your Christian side, your Christian nature among Christians, and to tuck it away and hide it and keep it a little bit to the left or to the right of your, in your heart in those public situations. And it's not so much about behavior as much as it is about thinking. Do we have a secular divide in our thoughts? The way I'm going to think about this problem is not according to the scriptures or according to the wisdom of God. I'm going to think about this according to best business practices or pragmatism or something like that. Our thoughts 
deal with the secular divide uh, just as much as our behavior. And Paul's words here are against setting our mind on any of those things, on the sinful desires, on self-interest, on worldly values, on this secular bargain. He says instead that we are to set our minds on that which is above, that we are to seek that which is above. And what is he speaking of? He, of course, is speaking of, of, of heaven, but more specifically, he is speaking of the one who is in heaven, who is at the very pinnacle of heaven, namely Christ. We are to have our minds set upon him, on who he is, on what he has done. And Paul gives us a powerful image for us to dwell upon about Christ in heaven. He tells us that he is seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God is one of the uh, favored phrases of the apostles to describe Christ's ultimate uh, victory, his ascension, the, 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 the fulfillment of all that he did on the cross and in his resurrection, that when he ascended, he is now seated at the right hand of God. And by that, that phrase, seated at the right hand of God, uh, we are to recognize that Christ has finished all that he was to do, that Christ occupies the highest of highest thrones, that he is sovereign over every area of life, that there is no compartmentalization, that every aspect of this world Christ rightfully claims, mine, as he left Earth in uh, Matthew 28 says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. There is no secular divide when our mind is set on Christ. And when we dwell on him seated, we recognize that Christ is resting. Resting. That's the, that's the image of seated. Not only is his work finished, but he is resting in the satisfaction of his finished work. And so as we are all angst-ridden about hurricanes and storms, the one that we are to set our mind upon is the one who is above the storm and who is able to rest in the storm. And that is where our mind is supposed to be. Paul is saying, set your mind there because it is awesome and when your mind is set there, you won't think of anything else. I, I picture the throne room uh, with what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, where in the, day that, or the year that King uh, Uzziah died, a day of great political disaster, a day of, of, of great uncertainty on the earthly plane for the nation of Israel, the prophet Isaiah, who himself seems a bit crestfallen, visits the temple and in the year Uzziah dies, Isaiah in the temple sees God on his throne. Sees God with, with the angels, the seraphim, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And at the end, Isaiah's mind is so enraptured and engaged with this vision 
that it no longer matters that it's the year that King Uzziah died. His only thought is, woe is me. And once his sins are forgiven, it's, here I am, send me. And it is that compelling vision, this mind upon the heavenly realm, that best explains how Isaiah completes his ministry because he faces all kinds of earthly pressures. But it is that picture of holy, 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 of a, of a, of a throne room filled with smoke, with almighty majesty, that is where Christ is right now. When you set your minds on Christ now, who is seated at the right hand, you are setting your minds on the same one who the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. And if that thought truly sits in your brain, what can you do but be an Isaiah and say, here I am, send me, regardless of what you see in the world around you. You see, Paul is saying to know him is to be so gripped by him that there is no, uh, I'm, I'm a secular person here and a spiritual person here. It's to be Christ's through and through everywhere. You see, the mind is the telltale organ of the Christian's regeneration. Paul tells us again in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So my question to you, have you experienced the regenerated mind of setting your mind on Christ? Does your thoughts go there? Do you wonder at Christ? Do you want to know Christ? Does he shape you? Does he, does he transform the way you think? This is very fundamental. You either have the, the, uh, the mind set on the flesh or you have the mind by the Spirit set on Christ. Paul describes the first application of the Christian life in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in writing to the Philippians, he brings out clearly the final application for his precious church. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I would say he could have said it maybe shorter and say, if there is anything of Christ, think of it and dwell upon it. See, Paul recognizes that the Christian life begins and is shaped by what you do with your mind. Not just that you know him, but that you actively seek him like a lover. Seek. Set. That is 
the daily pursuit of the Christian. The Christian is possessed by a worshiping mind. Second, we see that the second mark that manifests the believer's new life in Christ is a selfless security. A selfless security. As Paul goes on to say in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul has not changed his argument about where you set your mind. He's not gone on to something else. He is recognizing that the mind that is set on above, that is set on Christ, will know a security that is far different than one who sets their mind below. So what is the mind set below uh, have? What is their security? Their security is simply self-security. You, you find your security, your, your uh, sense of stability in the fact that you have money, in the fact that you have smarts, in the fact that you do hard work, in the fact that you've built a, a reputation, or that you have a network of friends who are ready to, uh, to help you. That's, that's the, the setting our minds on the things below. How do I find security on things below? Well, I have to find it in myself and in what I can do. But what's the problem with that? It's fragile. It's fragile. Your money is finite. Your smarts are only as good as the next person who outsmarts you. Sometimes hard work does not pay off. And sometimes your network isn't there to help you. I remember in my, in my engineering days, I was, we would go to these meetings all the time. Tell us what you did. Tell us what's next. Tell us what the plan is. And, and you know, money was on the table about every one of these decisions. So you just sit in these meetings, and I, would, I just had terror that somebody was going to ask me a question and I couldn't answer it. And the, the full stupidity of Nathan Edwards was going to become clear to everyone. And they replaced me. I had that fear. I, I, I'm sure I'm not describing an only fear. But there is there's only so much that you can do. You're always fragile. But Paul is offering us here a selfless security. How is it a selfless security? We are being offered in the gospel a security that is not grounded in ourself. It is a security that is not dependent upon us. In short, it's a gospel-given security. And Paul describes this gospel-given security in verse 3 in two ways. First, it frees us from death. He says, you, uh, for you have died. He declares, you have died. Why have you, what does it mean that you have died? It means that death no longer has any power over you because you have been raised with Christ. The power of death has been stolen, has been crushed underneath you. So the greatest threat that you would die and that that would, that would send you to judgment has been destroyed. But second... 
You've been hidden with Christ. You have been hidden with Christ. The words hidden is to stress your security. He, he is saying you have been hidden. You are unfindable. You are unreachable. You are safe. The word hidden in, in, the, in the scriptures is, is used of what Rahab did with the spies. So that when the Canaanites came trying to find the spies, they couldn't. They were safe. They were hidden. Hidden describes what Moses' parents did when the the Egyptians were coming around prepared to murder all of the baby boys. Moses was kept safe. He was hidden. And so when Paul tells us, you are hidden with Christ in God, he is describing the ultimate security. How hidden are we? We are in Christ who is seated on God's throne. We are in the same place because we are with Christ that the seraphim surround. We are in the absolute safest, most secure, highest place we can be. As as Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That is where you are. You're in the almighty hand of God and Christ seated on the highest throne. That is your security. And it is not fragile. It is undefeatable. So what does selfless security look like? How does that manifest itself? Well, there's only one way that that having true selfless security can manifest itself. It's in being a person of self-sacrificing love. If you recognize your security of being hidden in Christ, then you are free from securing yourself. You are free from thinking all the time about yourself. You have nothing to lose. You have everything to give. This is really what what Jesus was offering the rich young ruler. You know the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus. He's all excited. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, gives him a list of the commandments, and the guy says, oh, I've, I've done this every day of my life since my youth. And then Jesus looks at him with love, and he says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, I know what that story does to every single one of us right now. Everything? Sell everything? You see, our our self-security, our dependence on our own means cries out, everything is too risky. But what was Jesus really saying to the rich young ruler? He is saying, I will give you treasure in heaven. I will give you the securest of secure riches. 
I will give you everything that you could possibly need so that you are free. Christ was offering the freedom to live selflessly. He was saying, if you follow me, your worries about taking care of yourself go away. And you can be generous. You can give all away because you will lose nothing when you are with me. This is the selfless security of the gospel. As Jim Elliott famously said, a missionary who gave his life at the beach of Ecuador to try and spread the gospel. He understood his life hidden with Christ and is famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, when your mind is secure upon Christ, when it is hidden in the heavens, you become selfless and free to give it all away because that's not where your security exists. Finally, the third mark that manifests the believer's new life in Christ is a controlling hope, a controlling hope. Paul in verse 4 says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, Paul is still dealing with the, are you set on the things of the earth or are you set on the things above? You see, we are dealing with the question of hope here. And what is, a, what is an earth level hope? An earth-level hope is, is synonymous with a wish. You know, it's, it's, it's like the hope that, that some of you have for the saints. Even some of you have for the patriots. And the only one of you that really knows heavenly hope has it for the chiefs. But what I mean by that is... When we hope on earth, we are hoping in fragile, transitional, temporary, impermanent, and unguaranteed things. And we hope our best in those things, but they don't always turn out, they don't always work, and that is why we are all acutely aware of disappointments. So Paul is saying that you don't hope on the things in the earth, you hope For the things above you hope for the things in heaven. And this hope is categorically different. It is a hope that is confident. It is a hope that is grounded by promise. It is a hope that shapes your very life. Look again at verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is a when, not an if. It is a then. There is a real day when Christ will return and those who are believing in him, who have set their minds upon him, will return with glory with him. The faith of the scriptures 
has nothing to do with wishful thinking. It is historically grounded. Our hope that we will be with him is grounded in the hope that he is the one who is risen. It is a hope that is built on the reasonable trust of God's word. Christ is risen. His promise is good. And so if we have that hope, that hope is not simply a hope of that day. It is a hope that controls all the days from this one to that one. It is controlling because it, its certainty defines and focuses our present. Look at that phrase, when Christ, who is your life. You see, there is a future element, when. But there is also a present element, is. Is your life. When Christ comes, It will be a glorious day for you because right now, Christ is your life. And the way that you know you participate in that glory is that right now, you can't describe yourself without saying, I am Christ's. Christ is my life. That is how we know that all of these promises are for us because our lives have been regenerated, our minds have been filled with Christ, our security has been set in heaven, and our hope controls us so that we do not live as the world lives. My friends, by the gospel, you are raised with Christ. By the gospel, you were raised with Christ and you possess these three marks that manifest the believer's life in Christ. You possess a worshiping mind, a selfless security, and a controlling hope. That is what Paul wants you to see must be the case when you know him. And so I want to finish with a short little poem a poem that summarizes what it means to have your mind set on Christ as your controlling hope, as your selfless security. It is a a poem that I don't know who wrote it, but it is profoundly simple, and I believe it brings to a head what it means to have your mind set on Christ. A poem is this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, when you are set upon Christ, you recognize what heavenly thinking is. Only those who have their minds set on heaven are going to make any difference. Are you setting your mind on what lasts? Are you spending your life on what will last? Amen.